this is part 11. I couldn't come up with a nice short, terse title. How faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed. How faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed. I grew up in a Christian home, a good Christian home. I felt very blessed and very fortunate. I was never taught this. I was taught that holiness was something you ought to do. True enough. But somehow a a, a theology, a meaningful way of appreciating how God wants to change our lives and sanctify our lives, to use that old word that doesn't get used much anymore, I never had a good handle on until way too late in my Christian life. I wish the kind of thing I'm teaching, trying to teach this morning, I wish I had learned it 20 years earlier in my Christian walk. It's important, and that's why I said maybe a few more minutes. I have a longer introduction and maybe five or six quicker points if we get through them all. If biblical hope, as we have been teaching, produces joy and love, and the scriptures clearly promise that, what are we to make of Christians who become uh, tired, weary, disillusioned in their faith? It's no secret. A lot of people try to live the Christian life, make a start in the Christian life, and kind of flounder in a discouraging mixture of good intentions and broken commitments. Somehow something seems to just disconnect and kind of misfire in their walk with Jesus. How can, that, how can this be fixed? What, what goes wrong? So here are the questions. They come up in my mind. Is genuine godliness possible for everyone in this world? I don't mean perfectly, of course, but at least as a general direction, motivation of mind and will. And if this is possible, what's the fuel for that kind of godliness? Is it available to everybody? Is it the same as sheer willpower? And if not, then how can I tap the source of genuine godliness in my life? We're going to spend a few weeks on the relationship between hope. This is a series about hope. But hope, as it's related to faith... And joyful holiness, where you don't just pursue righteousness, but you start to prefer righteousness. Today we're going to look specifically at the relationship between misplaced hope and continuing in sin. And we're going to look at the way biblical hope deepens and intensifies faith, almost to the point where you you, you really can't make a clear distinction between faith and hope. They become very closely united and tied together. And that matters. Here's why that matters, because my New Testament teaches me that faith faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So this is our starting place today. There's a living, vital relationship between hope and what we would call justifying faith, salvation, and sanctifying faith, holiness. And I think it's because maybe it isn't uh, thought through as often and as deeply as it should be that a lot of people are confused about what seem to be some contradictory scriptures. Let me give you an example of this. There are some 
statements that make the whole Christian walk look free and simple and easy. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. You know these words. Come to me. This is Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I just want you to, I'm not preaching on this, but notice this. There's a rest given. Come to me, all you that labor, and I will give you rest. And then take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find rest. Those aren't the same thing, but that's not the topic this morning. For my yoke, here, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Or, consider words like this. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. There's the verb. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. There you have it. Life united to Christ is free and uncomplicated. In fact, the word Jesus uses is it's easy. Easy. Easy's good. We like easy. And, and then you keep reading your New Testament and you find, you find other statements. You find statements like, here's two passages. There's the first verb. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. So this strive, it applies to that and it applies to that. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Luke 9.62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to to the plow and even looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you feel like, you feel like saying, so, so uh, which is it? Is the Christian life an easy life, or is it a striving life? Is it like plowing a field on a hot day behind some oxen? Is it no work, not of works? Is it easy, like Jesus said? Or is it a great deal of work? Do you have to strive? And how can both those concepts apply? Here's the key point this morning. I I am saying there's no contradiction between any of those verses. If you understand the nature of faith as it gets expressed in real daily life. The same faith that reaches out and embraces Jesus in salvation continues to reach out and embrace his will in the daily decisions of life. So, so faith, both receives Jesus and pursues Jesus. But here's the thing. How does this easy come into play? This pursuing isn't a burden. Faith always pursues holiness because once faith tastes 
the beauty of freely bestowed grace, it becomes more satisfied with God than anything else. It's not a burden for me to forsake all others and love Rini. But that's because I love her, and so the rest is easy. You could say it's very restrictive. How many women are there on this planet? I get one. If you wanted to sit back and... Yeah, it's pretty confining. But, but I never think of it that way. The, the love and the satisfaction that I have in relationship with her makes all of those restrictions easy. Because of the reception of God's grace, God's commands cease to be a burden and are seen instead in increasing measure as a road to freedom and a road to joy. And so, in fact, it's on the basis of grace received that we're called to holiness in the first place. You know these because we've been looking at them on Sunday night. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's There's the reception, the understanding, the savoring of mercy. And the result of that is, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. But here's what it becomes. It becomes like worship. Notice how the power of mercy received turns obedience, which could carry just connotations of willpower and labor, but it turns it into into worship. Grace so transforms obedience that it's based in love and it results in joy and it becomes our spiritual worship. I want to explain how I think this works. And so if you guys are up there working on the slides, go to point number one. I'm jumping ahead. I'm, I'm panicking a little bit. How does all of this work? Okay. How does hope fuel holiness when it's placed properly? And how does hope increase sin when it's misplaced? I want to kind of zero in on that with four or five thoughts. One, no one sins out of duty or obligation. I know that seems obvious. James wants to remove all doubt. And here's what he says in James Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice the strong emphasis on desire. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know, I really haven't haven't, uh, committed adultery in a long time. I don't really feel like it, but I guess it's just got to be done. So I'm just going to get on with it. I really haven't robbed a bank in a long time. I mean, that's just ridiculous. James says people sin 
because they get enticed, lured, he uses that word. They get enticed by their own desires. In other words, all of us, there's only one reason we sin, and that is, at some point, we want to. We want to. We may hate sin after we commit it. But at least at its entry point, we, we sin because we would rather sin than not sin. And sin gets its mastery over us through our desires. So just remember that first obvious point because it's going to set the stage for understanding the power of hope that creates faith that will overcome the world. No one sins out of duty. All right? We're all agreed. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin out of desire. Point number two. Sin succeeds by holding out some promise for our future. It can be any promise, depending on where you are in your present circumstances. But sin, sin never offers us nothing. Remember, no one sins out of sheer duty, okay? That's the first point. There's always, there's always a promise attached to sin. Maybe the promise of fulfillment, promise of pleasure, promise of success, promise of prosperity, promise of security, promise of revenge, getting even, promise of power, promise of beauty, or just the thrill of some momentary excitement. There's always a promise attached to temptation. Satan takes Jesus up and says, All these I will give to you if you worship me. There's, there's a promise. You might say that's the standard form of every sin. It never varies. The reward varies. The pattern remains the same. And, and here's the money point. Under point number one, no one sins out of duty. Here's the money point here. I wish I'd learned this long ago. Sin's power is directly tied to my belief in the promise that it carries. Sin's power over my life is directly tied to my belief, sorry, in the promise that it carries. And so now we come to this most important point of all in considering the power of hope. To create a faithful response to God and victory over the world. Point number three. Sin is what you do when your heart is not fully resting on the hope of God's promise for your future. Sin is what you do when your heart is not fully resting on the hope. This is a series about hope on the hope of God's promise for your future. Look carefully at it. So, so the, the, the power of sin is inversely related to the power of hope in God's promise. The power of sin is inversely related to the power of hope in God's promise. Sin is what you do when you don't believe that God's promise of future blessing and strength and grace is vastly superior to what you could obtain by doing things your own way. 
That's where sin comes from, all sin. It's tied to where you're placing your hope for your future. So, so let's just get practical. Coveting. Coveting is turning away from satisfaction in God to placing your hope in satisfaction in things. That's where that sin comes from. Lust. I'm thinking now, lust means general desire, but I'm thinking even of sexual lust. Is turning away from satisfaction in God to the hope of satisfaction in some kind of forbidden sexual relationship. Bitterness. Revenge is turning away from satisfaction in God to the hope of getting even and getting satisfaction in revenge. So study the root behind any of those sinful actions and here's what you'll find they all have in common. The root behind all of those sins is ultimately the same. It's unbelief. The root is the failure to truly trust, to truly hope on the promise that God's future provision will be infinitely better and infinitely more joy-producing than the satisfaction I can find apart from Christ and his lordship over my life. So in other words, the power of any of those sins that I just mentioned, and, and hundreds more, it comes from believing the lie, placing your hope in the lie that is attached to those temptations. Oh, this will work. Oh, this will be good. Before I sin in action, I sin in a misplaced hope. I trust the power of sin to be more satisfying than the certain hope that God promises to those who will follow him in obedience. That's how it works. So here's the point. This is what I wish I had learned decades earlier. Dutiful obedience. A lot of us were raised in that. Dutiful obedience is, it's it's better than disobedience. I'll give you that. I'm not arguing that. But dutiful obedience is basically willpower obedience. And I believe it'll always be hit and miss. Expectant obedience. Obedience that's tied to hope for greater fulfillment. Hopeful obedience is the faith that overcomes the world because it's, because it's a desire-transforming obedience, not just a willpower obedience. It shapes where you put your longings. Did I make that clear, sort of? Four. The promise of sin, the promise, it always comes with a promise, 
The promise of sin will hold sway over my life until I believe that my whole being will be more satisfied in God than anything else. So, so duty obedience will be sustained only as long as my willpower endures. But faith that's fueled by hope in God's promised future will help me to prefer righteousness in the face of any specific moment of temptation. And, and only when the promise of grace and blessing from God, only when that becomes more attractive than the promise of sin, that's the only time that the power of sin gets broken in my life. When, when, you, when, you, start to just, when you start to shape your thinking a little bit this way, steer it this way a little bit, you'll see it over and over and over in the Scriptures. You'll see verses like this. We used to sing a chorus about this. We don't anymore. Because your steadfast love... Because your steadfast love is better. See the comparison word? Because your steadfast love is better. Better than what? Better than any temptation that comes with any other offer. Okay? In life. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands. This, this is, I believe this is the hub of holiness. Until I come to hope in God's promised future provision and blessing, more than the promises of sin, I will be a slave to sin. These verses aren't just David trying to pump up a worship service. He, he's talking to himself. There are Dozens of allurements out there. And he did get tripped up a couple times, right? There are dozens of temptations. There are 20 situations every day that would tempt his heart and his mind to sin. And they always do it the same way with some kind of promise of reward. No one, remember, sins out of duty. No one. And so David is reminding himself... There's nothing more wonderful than the loving kindness of God. That's what he's doing. Of all the things that will come into my life, my whole life, there's nothing better than the loving promise of God. The hope that he has for my future, my life in his hands, will be better than any of the promises that temptations bring and offer. Five. You still with me? Okay. Boy, hasn't the microphone been good? Did I speak too soon? <laughs> Five. Faith is a hope-filled satisfaction with God for your future good and joy. I want to at least try my best to be clear on this point. If we leave... You'll notice the way I've used the words hope and faith so many times, almost interchangeably. It's on purpose. If, if we leave hope, hope, hope in the promise of obedience, that it's better than the promise that comes attached to every temptation. If we leave hope out of the picture, faith becomes nothing more, and here's the problem. Faith becomes just adhering to certain points of truth. Certain doctrines. And 
You won't get any argument from me how important understanding doctrine and truth is. I believe that with all my heart. But without the concept of hope and trust, faith becomes just believing certain facts about Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's coming again. You can give assent to all of those facts. You can give assent to all of those facts and still be chained to sin. You can give assent to all those things. Deliverance isn't tied to a doctrine. It's tied to a hope. Here's what faith is. Faith is hoping and cherishing, hoping in and cherishing Jesus above all. So, so faith is always... It's always future-oriented, even when it looks back and is anchored to the past, Christ's death and resurrection. It's anchored there, but it doesn't just look in one direction. It It isn't just having our sins forgiven. Faith is essentially tied to what do you do with your life from this moment on? Where is your hope And that's why you'll see verses like this, which, I mean, we all know these kinds of verses, but we need to see them in a fresh light. Now, faith, so you think, okay, he's talking about faith, right? Faith is the assurance of what? Do you see it? Do do you see the future direction here? The assurance of things hoped for. Where do you put your hope? There'll be a dozen temptations with promises attached to them. Are you going to hope in any of those things? Because if you do, you're chained to your sin. Faith is tied to hope in the sense that it goes, no, I will be better off this way. And I really believe that. Then the power of sin is vastly reduced in your life. The connection between faith and hope in Hebrews 11.1 and dozens of other verses. It's just so tight Because it's the power of hope that makes my faith affectional, not just doctrinal. I want to show you now as we wrap up. Well, we're not quite wrapping up. How Jesus came up with the the same kind of teaching. I want to try and show it to you. John chapter 4. I had to put this text on two slides. You know the account of Jesus and the woman at the well. 10 to 14 of John 4. Jesus answered her, so they're in this conversation. If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Next slide. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself. This is a special place. As did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, now here it is. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. There's nothing ultimately quenching here. Okay, you need to see that. But whoever drinks of the water that 
I will give him will will never be thirsty forever. It's terrible English, but it is a very literal translation. Will never be thirsty forever. So here, here's what Jesus says. There's a satisfaction here that, that drives out all other thirsts. Okay? The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So... Better to get from Jesus because it quenches all the other thirsts. Satisfy yourself over here. There's promises attached to all sorts of things, but you're just going to be thirsty again. So Jesus is saying what Hebrews 11.1 1 said. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, 33 to 35. Here's the same concept with a different picture. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, that's Jesus, right? And gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now here's the same idea. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and who believes in me will, will never thirst. Here's what I see in those two John texts. A, the images of eating and drinking were favorite pictures used repeatedly by Jesus to describe what faith in him was about. And both those images make it clear that faith is more than just some kind of doctrinal agreement. Mental assent to certain statements. Just like eating is more than believing in food. The second thing, B, Jesus specifically equates faith with being satisfied with him for all future needs. It's in that last part of of 35 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Other water, other bread will soon leave the partaker empty again. Don't put your hope. It's a series about hope. Don't put your hope there. Anchor it to me because there's an eternal satisfaction in it. Or the way David would say it, thy loving kindness is better than life. Six, this is the last point. I want to look quickly at how Paul applied this same principle. So we've looked at Hebrews, some of the things that Jesus said, the psalmist David, now the apostle Paul. I just want to show you that this isn't some little trick thing that I pulled out of some obscure passage in Habakkuk. You get this thread of teaching that links faith and hope. How Paul applied this principle to his own life of holiness in this present age. Here's a text that you've probably heard a million times. I have been crucified with Christ. There's the rock-solid atonement that Paul relies on back there. But it, it is, but it isn't. It is no longer I who live. Now we're in the present tense, okay? But Christ who lives in me. 
the life I now live, just to make it clear, he's talking present. The life I now live in the flesh, so it's right here on this planet, I live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the cross. So Paul uh, plainly says that the power by which he lives is faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Verse 20. That's the power. That's the source of his strength. Then he does something really important. He focuses our attention not just on the past and the forgiveness of sins, but on the power he has obtained for present holiness. The life I now live, I live by faith. So Paul, more than anybody, Paul truly rejoiced in the cleansing of past sins, the cross, the Son of God who loved me, he says, who gave himself for me. But, but he uses that faith right now and for his future. So he doesn't just mean... I'm really, 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 really glad Jesus died for my sins. And I really, 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 really believe that he did. There's, there's, this, there's, this, there's this future hope. It, it's, it's steering his life down the road in the choices that he makes. Faith is tied to hope. My last text. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What's that talking about? You can answer me. It's the cross, right? Is that, is that where faith ends? Well, that is a very important part of faith. Here's the hope part. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? I, I will never have any temptation come into my life with a promise like that. That's what he's saying. Yes, faith does have its roots in the past. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. But it manifests itself in hope. Substance of things hoped for. We will fail miserably when we look at God's commands and see only commands. That's my belief. I had a big, big chunk of my life where I was taught because you do what God says because he says so. And that's not untrue. But it's not, it's not as highly effective in changing the direction of my heart. We will always find the commands restrictive and we will find the enticing, attached promises to sin. We'll find them attractive until we refuse to see God's commands apart from the hope that's attached to them. Satan only shares in bankrupt companies. It's like buying Briads, you know. There's a promise there and there's nothing behind it. No one sins out of duty. Our lives are steered by where we place our hope. Thy loving kindness is better than love.